Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that we would never take it for granted. It tells us all we need to know about you and our lives. Open it up for us today through the power of your spirit and change us so that we may be more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So our text this week is from the final chapter of Ephesians, chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 5 to 9. So if you could turn there now, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Given that it is a little while since we were last here, I'll just make a reminder that in this section of the book, after earlier telling us what it means to be a Christian in terms of our relationship to God and to each other, Paul is now writing about Christian conduct, how we ought to behave in real life. And today we're going to have a look at what that means in the context of the workplace. Let's read our text then. Bond servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you, masters, Do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The very first thing I want to deal with is this word bondservant. And although that's what the New King James Version uses here, your translation may use a much more troubling word, slaves. (laughs) In today's context, that is a very troubling word. It's very distasteful. And it's one that nobody would like to apply to themselves and certainly not an occupation we'd like to inflict on somebody else. And since this is so, some of us might be distracted from understanding what the passage is really saying. So, before I go on any further, let's try to clear that up. The first thing is historical context. You see, when Paul wrote this, the Roman Empire was very heavily dependent on slaves to take care of its hard labour and menial tasks. In fact, many of Paul's recipients of this letter will certainly have been slaves, since by one historian's estimate, perhaps half of the population or even more were under servitude. And the conditions they worked under were quite varied. Some had it very hard. As the Romans went around and conquered nations, they took slaves from there to be used in the empire's widespread construction projects or in its mines. And they were fed only a subsistence diet, They were worked to exhaustion and, of course, injuries and disease were common and once they were too sick to work or, in very rare cases, too old, well, they were just cast aside and abandoned. And there were household slaves and they had a lot better conditions because nearly every Roman home owned at least two or three servants and some of the bigger ones had hundreds. And they did work like assisting the woman in maintaining the home and raising the children. And there were also slaves in business. Uh, Slaves with occupational expertise were very valuable in the workplaces. And some businesses were completely dependent on these imported cheap labourers. So if we set aside for a moment the notion of being an owned thing, slavery was a very normal part of society at the time. 
It didn't carry with it that very justified stain that the word does today. So the conversation Paul is having is at the level of slavery as a fact of life. How are you going to deal with it as a Christian? Not. Slavery is an outrage. Let's revolt and kill our masters. Cue screaming and clashing of swords. And that might seem like a strange idea. Because God is certainly a God of justice. Scripture tells us this over and over. Why then wouldn't his apostle then speak for justice? Rise up and throw off your shackles, or at least say something very rude about slavery. Actually, Paul does speak for justice, the very greatest justice of all. What he says is very consistent with the message of the gospel. Let's remember that the Messiah the Jews were looking for was a warrior king coming rampaging on a horse to slay the Romans. But how did Jesus arrive? He came sweetly, humbly as a child in a manger, then working as a carpenter and dying on a cross. The gospel is not meant to be preached with a sword. It is a message of reason, of persuasion demonstrated by life in the normal world that God is real and that God is good. All of mankind can be freed by its message and it is a freedom that can never be shackled or taken away. Spiritual slavery ended the moment Jesus died, but his first breath in that manger meant that the days of physical slavery too were also numbered. The freedom Jesus brings is also an equal freedom. No one is more free than any other. In Colossians 3 it says that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And we can read the same message again in Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 12. It means that slavery is merely a social distinction because in Christ all persons are equal. Thus, when Paul writes this instruction to obey your master, he isn't doing so to remind slaves of their miserable servitude. He's saying, it's not what you do, but what you are in Christ that matters. So that's all very well then. It wasn't so unusual to be a slave back in the day. But what does that have to do with me here in 2016? I'm not officially a slave. <laughs> really? Let's have a look at this word slave a bit more carefully. As used here in the original Greek, it's the plural douloi, which is derived from the singular doulos. And this word describes a slave that was born into slavery as opposed to an andropon who was made a slave. And I think you might have clue where I'm going next. Scripture tells us that as believers, we too are born again, not as creatures of a natural birth, but a new spiritual birth. John 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there it is, straight from Jesus' mouth. The believer is born again. But what condition are they born into, slave or free? Well, for that birth, 
that rebirth to be possible, firstly a price had to be paid. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are bought at a price. So we are born into a condition of life that has been paid for by someone else. And that means that we belong to that person. As it says here, we are not our own. And that means that by definition, we are their slave. How does that make you feel? Personally, I would be very, very uncomfortable if I did not know that as it says here, that both my body and my spirit belong to God who is infinitely and invariably good and loving, and that it was these very qualities that drove him to provide the sacrifice of Jesus' own life to purchase and pardon me. Well, that's all very well. But what does it mean? What does it mean for me? It means that we have exchanged the small freedom of wastefully exploring our own desires during a fixed time here on earth for the much greater prize of eternal freedom in God's kingdom. I'd say that's a bargain. So what if it means that our purpose here and now is to serve the Lord as he commands us? That service brings a reward that is imperishable. To to truly serve the Lord is a doulos. In each and every moment of our lives we must hand over our will to him and allow him to take us and use us as he desires. Sometimes this may be inconvenient and unpleasant and show no reward. And it may very well even be dangerous. And that's hard because our nature is that we we always want to know what's in it for us and it ought to be delivered now and for the the purposes of greatest comfort. But that is not the point. We ought not to look at our feet in the mud but towards the sun on the horizon. And that is where our hope lies, in God's promise of an eternal life of freedom from death and sin. A life of service now is a very, very small price to pay. And this isn't by any means a new idea. The position of being God's slave puts us in great company. Old Testament biblical characters who use the same title of doulos include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Isaiah, and Daniel. In the New Testament, Epaphras, Timothy, Paul, Peter, Jude, John, and Jesus himself all used the same term too. So by taking this name, like these other great biblical um, people, we show that it is not an earthly position that is important, but who we serve in heaven. Okay, I get it now, Dave. I'm God's slave, but no one else's, right? Well, I guess that by now it would be from the department of the bleeding obvious to say that although we might not be physical slaves today, most of us do have the job. And this is where we still get to serve a master of the flesh. So this text absolutely remains as relevant today as it was when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it. Moreover, let us not forget that no matter what our our feelings might be about our work, it is where the Lord has sovereignly put us. 
And that being the case, perhaps we ought to have a look at what is written here about how we are supposed to serve thee. But before I can do that, there is a key word in verse 5 that first must be explored, and it is the word obedient. Now I sort of suspect the idea of being obedient is as unpleasant to hear as that word slave. But it's inescapably here in the text, and so we must deal with it. And it is in fact foundational to being the right sort of doulos because the Greek word tells us that it's not the reluctant, oppositional and grudging sort of obedience, but one comes that, that comes from immediately listening and following instructions with a submissive and willing heart. And that makes sense because without the right heart attitude, all of the stuff we're going to be talking about in a moment like sincerity and goodwill is all a sham and without any real value. And let's face it, people know when you're faking it. Now, it might seem to be a big ask to be willing, obedient, willingly obedient as the scripture requires. After all, that's really not our normal nature. Our usual state of being is me first and the devil take the hindmost. So, how on earth am I going to find it within me to make such a big and more importantly genuine change? Well, the answer is that these things are only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. If we look back just a little way to the end of chapter 5, before Paul starts the section about various types of relationship, he puts down a foundation for them. His call is to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So that's where it all begins. The Holy Spirit is the key to this all. If we do not engage the one who has been given to us as helper, then we are never ever going to do these things in our own strength. Philippians 2 has similar language to what we have here, but note what it says about our source of strength for the work of sanctification in verse 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his own good pleasure. Verse 13 that's important here. The Greek word that is used for works in verse 13 is enegeo. Has anybody got any idea by any chance what modern word might have come from there? Energy, yes, of course, energy. It is God who energizes you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Lord has not left us alone to do these difficult things in either our will or our flesh. He has lent us his own energy. If we turn to his spirit within us, we will find the resources to succeed in our own tasks. Now we can move on to the next few verses. If you didn't like the words slave and obedience, well, you're going to positively hate the first mode of service, which is to do so with fear and trembling. Now, I had a little mental picture about this. I thought it might cause a bit of a stir if it was actually your response the next time your boss asked you to do something. I think he'd probably have to run away and look in a mirror to make sure that there wasn't something wrong with his face if you started shaking like this when he spoke to you. 
Now there's a long and scholarly explanation about this term and its uses elsewhere in scripture and so on. And I know you'll be disappointed, but I'll spare you from that. To serve with fear and trembling just means to do so with proper respect. It's that simple. How do we do that practically then? Although it's quite a while since I personally worked for somebody else, I do have enough experience of that environment to know that one of the favourite topics of conversation is the boss. We all love to hate the boss, scandal about the boss and complain about the boss amongst ourselves. After all, they are so stupid and unreasonable and unfair and they must be much better off than ourselves because they own the company and look at the car they've just bought. Friends, this is the first place where we can set our flag by refusing to join in on these gossip festivals. They are unhelpful and mean-spirited. And then there's the way that we receive and execute instructions. We all know people who are difficult to motivate because they throw up objection after objection and finally submit with an ill grace. That is not the proper way for a believer to respond. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can take our orders with good grace and then do whatever is required promptly and to the highest standard we can. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask relevant questions or that we should immediately rush off and steal something if we are told to do so. Of course not, because the Lord's standards for morality stand above all others. But the attitude that we serve with does count for a great deal. At this point, I want to raise the matter of error. Unfortunately, not everyone is like me, perfect in every respect. We do not always do things correctly. Sometimes we get stuff wrong. We break things, or we lose them, or we upset a customer. What then? Well, luckily for you, I have this problem-solving flowchart. (laughs) And you may be familiar with it already or perhaps its solutions. Although it is funny, there is considerable truth in it, because hiding it, blaming someone else, or forgetting about it are some of the very common ways that people deal with these sorts of things. Your toast. (laughs) This is not the attitude of someone with proper respect for their employer. It may be very hard to do, but with the heart of a doulos, we can take whatever comes on the chin with grace, and do our best to make things right again. No convenient hiding or avoiding or forgetting. And while it's not strictly within the purview of today's sermon, I do want to briefly mention that there's also an obvious opportunity for us to show to others the love of God in the workplace by taking a servant attitude to our colleagues. We won't be doing the message of the gospel any favours if we treat our employer in one way and our colleagues another. So, treat them all like dirt, I say. Well, of course not. I'm just checking to see if you're still awake. We don't usually need to be obedient to our colleagues, but qualities like respect, sincerity and loyalty are all very appropriate for us to practice on those who labour with us, and so we should not be reserving them just for those who are at the top. Okay, so that's the fear and trembling bit out of the way. So 
we can now look at a less fearsome phrase from verse 5, which is sincerity of heart. We are to serve with sincerity of heart. The Greek word means singleness, simplicity, uprightness, mental honesty, the virtue of one who is free from pretense. It describes a person who is motivated by singleness of purpose so as to be open and above board without guile and without a hidden agenda. It is personal integrity expressed, shown in word or action and it's more than just a nice idea. Now I know this is kind of old school but once upon a time this peculiar word was all the rage in graphics software. WYSIWYG. Does anyone know what it means? Ah, I'm impressed. Exactly. What you see is what you get. Although we like to think that we are the same all the time, the truth is that society encourages us to have a like a box of different personalities. Let's call them T-shirts to put on for various occasions. I'm at work, so I'm wearing my professional T-shirt with the screen-printed collar and tie on it. Then in the club after work, there's the silly face, good time guy T-shirt. And at home, there's the diligent husband doing the washing up T-shirt. And so on, and so on. The problem is that constantly changing your public face to suit the circumstances is worse than just telling a lie. It's being a lie. And that's not what we're called to be. This bit about eye service in verse 6 is telling us to set our box of t-shirts and just live in our birthday suit, so to speak. As I've just said, we are creatures of a new birth. We are reborn in Christ, perfected by his blood. That is the only suit we will ever need and the only one others ought to see. If we say that we are Christian here in this church, then that's what we ought to be in the workplace too. What you see is what you get. Wherever we are and whatever we do, it ought to be with that singleness of purpose that was identified as a fundamental element of that Greek word meaning sincerity of heart. And that single-mindedness is not to please man but to please God. Whilst we may gratify our bosses by being diligent and honest, that is secondary in every aspect to seeking to please the Lord. Look at what the text says. It gives us the why of the doing. We do because we are first the bondservants of Christ to bring to life the will of God here on earth. The quality of our service is not judged by what man thinks, but we work as though we are doing it for the Lord. That wall you build, it's for God. That spreadsheet that you created, it's for Him. That child that you've just bathed, it's for His glory. We have been saved by love and now enabled by the Holy Spirit within us, we serve for the sake of love. But wait, there is more. Although we do serve for love first, we do not go unrewarded because the Lord is not only good but he is fair. As the text says here in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does he will receive the same from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. If we do good, 
we will get good from the Lord. And please do not mistake what I'm saying here to be anything at all to do with a prosperity doctrine. No, I'm looking much further ahead than what happens here on earth. The principle of reward for doing the Lord's work is brought out in many New Testament verses. For example, in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And there's a similar message in Second Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We do not know exactly how we will be rewarded, but we can be certain of one thing. If it is from God, it will be good, and it will be everlasting. Now, I don't believe I've ever met anyone who didn't like a little bit left over from their salary after all the important stuff has been paid so that they can spend it on some personal treats. Discretionary income, it's called. The thing is that no matter how many of these little treats that we can accumulate during our lives, we're not going to be taking a single one with us when we die. The most likely thing that's going to happen is one of our family is going to be looking at some thing that we thought was especially cool and special and saying, what's this old junk, before buffing it in the bin? Through service to God, we have a much better opportunity because we can build up a treasure that is eternal. And this is what Paul is writing about here. Moreover, the Lord is absolutely impartial about who he gives his rewards to. It isn't the smartest or fastest or richest or best looking. It is the most faithful, whether slave or free. Isn't that wonderful? Although we do not serve with one eye on these gifts, nonetheless, they are there for us like sweet treats hidden inside a cake which you, don't, you find unexpectedly. Well, we have only one verse to go now, and because of its importance, I want to, or I thought I was going to be very thorough about going through it, about how masters should treat their slaves. But I won't. I'll just say this, because it's really very simple. If you employ people, everything that we've talked about today is as true for you as it is for the other direction. Treat your employees with respect, with fairness and loyalty. Treat them as though you were looking after them for God, because in truth that is what you're doing. And if there is a heavenly ward for the slave, well... It's one for the master too. The fact of the matter is that all believers, we here, have been freed from sin by the death of Jesus on the cross and as such we are now owned by God. He is our master. Whether employer or employee, we are his bondservants or slaves. And our service today is to be the same as those who first read this letter from Paul. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, to also show the love of God 
by reason, by demonstration and persuasion in the context of our working lives. Imagine how the world would be transformed if this is what everyone did. So I'll just leave you with this thought. You are writing a gospel, a chapter every day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us that our relationship to you isn't defined by this building or this day. That it's something we are to take with us wherever and whenever we go. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would work in us to make that consistently the case so that the world may see that you are good and may turn to you as Lord and Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.